As many of you know, we've been doing a sermon series on the major prophets, and we're calling it Prophetic Vision, Seeing the World Through God's Eyes. And last week, we finished up the book of Isaiah with Pastor Nate talking about the year of Jubilee, which gave us a glimpse into, into, gave us a glimpse into God's plan for a restored world. And this week, I get to introduce the book of Jeremiah. And thank you, Jonathan, as well, for introducing a little bit of the book as well. Um, it was a, a good message both for our children and for us adults. Um, and I'm glad that we've chosen this theme of prophetic vision for this series because that image is actually true to the prophets. Um, God gave the prophets of the Hebrew Bible a, a way of seeing that was unique and necessary. And there's actually another word used um, to describe prophets in the Bible. Is anybody familiar with that word? It has, has to do with the theme of vision. Um, so it's called seer. Yeah, I heard, I heard some of you guys say that. So I've got a, uh, got a slide up here for you. This it's from 1 Samuel 9.9, the NIV translation. Um, and point, um, Saul is, is looking for his father's donkeys, right? And, and one of his servants tells him, hey, we should go see this guy um, uh, in a nearby town, this, this man of God, this seer. Um, and then in the, in the parentheses here, the biblical narrator gives us a little clue as to what's going on here. So he says, formerly in Israel, if someone went to inquire of God, they would say, come, let us go to the seer, because the prophets of today used to be called seers. Um, and do you see what I'm getting at here? The, the prophets were known to ancient Israel as people who had a unique perspective on this world, and this idea is built into the very vocabulary of the Hebrew Bible that we see there. So I think, that's, I think our theme is an, is an appropriate one. So our task today is to start uncovering Jeremiah's unique vision of the world and for the people of Israel. Uh, and I'm not going to lie to you, Jeremiah has some truth bombs <laughs> to drop on us, right? Um, so are we ready? Are we ready to do this? All right, let's get into it. Um, and just to frame our talk today, I'd like to share one more quote from a guy named Richard Hayes. Um, and this quote comes from his most famous book. It's called Moral Vision of the New Testament. Um, and this is what he has to say. It says, anyone who joins such a community, i.e. a church community, should know that it is a place of transformation, of discipline, of learning, and not merely a place to be comforted or indulged. <laughs> I'll read it one more time. <laughs> anyone who joins such a community, i.e. a church community, should know that it is a place of transformation, of discipline, of learning, and not merely a place to be comforted or indulged. So today's passage is a hard one, Yes. <laughs> Um, it starts to poke at the, the pressure points of our own hearts, and the easy response will be just to forget what we've heard and go back to our, to our busy lives. Um, but according to Richard Hayes, and I agree with him, the proper and much harder response is to allow God to challenge us and to change us. So I think if we, if we go through this sermon on the major prophets without really allowing God to change us, to transform us, and to renew us, then I think we've missed the point of the major prophets. Um, so, Context going into to chapter 1 of Jeremiah. So I'll introduce a good bit of, of the beginning of Jeremiah, and then we'll get into the text for today. So what's happening at this time in Israelite history? Um, so Saul becomes Israel's first king in uh, 1050 BC, and this united kingdom lasts for about 100 years. Um, and by the time Solomon's son Rehoboam takes the throne, the 10 northern tribes have had enough of all of the, um, uh, the injustice. And uh, they split off, and so now we have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And uh, First and Second Kings gives us all the gritty details about all the kind of evil kings that Israel had uh, during this time, and this was before its captivity in Assyria. 
Uh, These kings led the people into great sin, but they were also reflections of the people's wayward hearts. Uh, With the kingdom now split between north and south, God sends his prophets to the two kingdoms, um, and Israel repeatedly rejects the prophets God sends to it and is taken into exile by Assyria in 722 BC. Um, And Judah is left untouched for for the moment. Um, And so the nation of Judah is watching all of this take place and turns to the Lord, but doesn't actually follow through. Um, So in Jeremiah 3.4, that was read to us by Wendy, um, God recounts these interactions, saying, Have you not just called to me, my father, my friend from my youth, will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? This is how you talk, but you do all the evil that you can. And then turning a little bit further to verses 9 and 10, it says, Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. And do you see the theme here? So Judah's, they're walking the walk, but they're not talking the talk. Um, and the people of Judah had, had witnessed Israel's destruction and its, be, and its people being taken captive into Assyria, yet they persisted in their sin and idolatry, and it was Jeremiah's job to address it. Um, so you might be able to see now why being a prophet was probably not the most popular choice of what you wanted to be when you grew up. Um, so Jeremiah's task is a, is a pretty hefty one. And so going back to chapter 1 of, of Jeremiah, we'll get a, a little glimpse of what God actually called him to do. Um, and I think I have this one up on, this, on the screen here. This is Jeremiah 1, verse 9 through 10. And I'll read it for us here. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot, to tear down, to destroy, and to build, and to plant. So how many of these words are pessimistic? (laughs) So four of them are. I've I've underlined all of the the verbs here. But uproot, tear down, destroy, and overthrow. That's a really pessimistic theme. And, And there are tons of themes in Jeremiah of hope and restoration as well. But our passage today really follows kind of into those first four verbs there. So I think it's, it's proper for us to really wrestle with that. And uh, Jeremiah is also known as the weeping prophet, um, someone who deeply yearns for the people to return to the Lord, um, deeply yearn for them to repent. Um, and he's, he's surrounded by all these false prophets who are saying, oh no, all is well, all is well, all is good. Um, but in the midst of this, Jeremiah sharply denounced Judah's wicked worship of idols and neglect of God's covenant with a warning that should such rebellious behavior continue, God would punish them for not upholding their end of the covenant, like we heard this morning from Jonathan. Um, He knew with absolute certainty that the God of Israel, in his abundant compassion and mercy, would relent from punishment and forgive his people if they simply turned from their sin wholeheartedly and sought the Lord again. So this is what Jeremiah preached to his people. But the tragedy of the book, of, of the book of Jeremiah, can be summed up in three words. It's they didn't listen. They didn't listen, and that's, that's the tragedy of the book of Jeremiah. Um, they heard him speak in the, tr- in the streets. They paid him no mind. It wasn't until they were in exile that Hebrew scribes rediscovered the writings of Jeremiah, only to find that this man that they had ignored and rejected had predicted all that had come to pass. Despite seeing for themselves that Israel was taken into captivity, cap- captivity for its sins, Judah proudly assumed that it was safe from capture. Prophets are consistently seen reminding the people of two hard truths. One, that the world is not as it should be, 
And two, that the people of God are not as they should be. Um, The people are not faithful in spreading the shalom that God calls them to, and the prophets critique them for it. Um, Then they call the people up. So it's, it's this process of calling the people out and then calling them up. One without the other is, is not good, right? Uh, so our, our passage today is one of dramatic calling out, and Jeremiah uses a pretty extreme metaphor in hopes of getting Judah's attention. Uh, so now we're getting into the elephant in the room, right? Um, this is an incredibly difficult passage for a few reasons, but I think the most obvious one is this, is that the nation of Judah is being depicted as an unfaithful wife. Um, and to, to be honest with you, I think uh, the recurring metaphor in the Old Testament of God as a husband and Israel or Judah as an unfaithful wife is one that I continue to wrestle with. That's a really difficult metaphor. Um, and so for those of you, especially women who, who really struggle with this kind of imagery, I want you to know you're not alone in that. Um, and I'm not capable of answering all of the questions that come out of these metaphors, but I, I think I have some inf- insights that will be helpful. Um, first, I think it's important to note that there are many feminine metaphors used to describe God in the Bible. Um, think of God being described as the mother hen in Matthew 23 who gathers her chicks under her wing, or wisdom itself being personified as a woman, in val- a woman of valor in Proverbs. Um, there are other times in the Bible, too, where it's the men who are in the problematic p- position. Uh, think of Jesus speaking of a man who commits adultery with another woman just by looking at her lustfully. Um, But getting more to the crux of this metaphor, um, I think a a helpful question to consider when working through these metaphors is this. What is the biblical author using this metaphor to communicate? Is he saying that women are inherently more lustful than men or that men are always faithful? The answer to these questions is a clear no. Um, So instead, I'm here to argue that the metaphor is being used to do two main things. The first thing that the metaphor is doing is it's contrasting quite dramatically the unfaithfulness of Judah with the faithfulness of God. Um, I think it's easier for us to grasp the weight of something when we encounter its opposite, right? So when we, um, when we understand the depth of, of, of Judah's unfaithfulness, we start to understand just how deep God's faithfulness is to his people. Um, and the extremity of Judah's unfaithfulness is pitted up against the extremity of God's unrelenting love and fidelity. So that's the first part of the metaphor that we have to keep in mind. The second part is that this metaphor is meant to elicit our compassion, um, which is kind of interesting. As I've been reflecting about this, this is kind of what I've come to. Um, And you might be wondering, like, okay, compassion for whom? Um, I think this this passage is is eliciting our compassion for God, which is fascinating. Like, who would would think of that? Having compassion for the God of the universe— so whether you're a man or a woman, a husband or wife, single or married, thinking about the pain of someone cheating on you is akin to the kind of betrayal that God feels in this passage. Um, so we, we are to experience the pain, the shock, and the injustice of the people's infidelity. So I don't know if you guys have, have heard of Henry Nouwen. He's a Catholic theologian. But in his uh, Genesee diary, uh, he tells the beautiful story of the Polish Jew who stopped, stopped praying because of what happened at Auschwitz. Later, however, he started to pray again. When asked, what made you change your mind? He answered, it suddenly dawned upon me to think how lonely God must be. To look, to look with whom he is left. I felt sorry for him. So what's being said here can also be said when personifying God as a husband who has been abandoned by his wife Judah. The intended consequence of Jeremiah's extreme and graphic metaphor is one of equal repulsion and compassion. When we imagine ourselves as a spouse of Yahweh who is found to be unfaithful, 
Uh, we, should regret, we should feel regret and, and sympathy for God. Um, so <laughs> the next question, uh, kind of logically, is what do we do with this regret? And I think uh, in 2 Corinthians 7, I've got it up on the, on the screen as well, Paul offers an answer to this question. Um, so I'll read this, this passage for us as well. It says, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. <laughs> I love the way that Paul writes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy because you were made sorry. But not, not because you were made sorry, but because, of the, because of your sorrow led you to repentance. Next slide. Thank you. Uh, godly sorrow brings repentance, which leads to salvation. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. Do you see the parallels here between Jeremiah and Paul? Both figures that um, are called to this, this prophetic mission. There are people who love their people and yearn deeply for their repentance. Um, and both Paul's vision and Jeremiah's vision of the world, the end goal of sorrow is never despair or hopelessness or anger or pride. It's humble repentance. Paul lays it out perfectly for us here. When confronted with the truth that we are so many, so many times unfaithful, we are inconsistent, we're stubbornly sinful, we're confronted with this sorrow. But this sorrow prayerfully and humbly acknowledged to naturally lead us to repentance and on into salvation. That's Paul's logic here. Um, and if you guys are familiar with John Guerra, he has, a, he has a beautiful song. And one of the lyrics in there, he concludes very simply that repentance is our truest praise. Repentance is our truest praise. So in our passage today, Jeremiah reminds the people of the covenant that they have committed to using this extreme metaphor. And now let me ask you guys, this is, this is a difficult question too. Do you have people in your life that are, that are Jeremiah's for you, that will call you out when you're not honoring the covenant? Um, do you have people who aren't afraid to tell you when you're not honoring your side of the covenant? Um, so I, I thought I would tell a little bit story, a little story from my own, my own life here. And it's funny to have my parents in the congregation here too. I don't know if you guys remember this story, but I do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, so some of you may know this, but I, I played soccer in high school, and uh, we had just finished a brutal soccer, soccer match against like our, our biggest rivals. They were called the Clearwater Chargers. It's like still stuck in my brain. Um, but this was a team we played once before. We ended up losing that match, and it was really heated, and both teams were like going at it, and we ended up losing in the last second. And so we were playing this team again, and uh, we were really, really looking to even the score this time, right? Um, and in this match, however, um, their team included players who were too old for our age group. So they had a few players that were much older than, uh, than were allowed to be in our, in our league. Um, and so this, this gave them an unfair advantage. And we, as the game went on, we held our own until the very end of the game. Um, and one of our defenders made this really bad decision and, and tackled the guy in the box, in the penalty box. And so the last play of the game was a penalty kick. It was 0-0 the whole time. And uh, then it's just our keeper versus, the, versus one of the strikers on the other team. Um, and it seemed like everything was kind of in slow motion. Um, the, the ball, like, slowly moving towards the net. And our keeper, like, oh, shoot, like, I need to move towards that, but wasn't able to move quickly enough. Um, and so... The ball ended up going in the back of the net, and we were all just, like, so angry about this. We were like, they won, but they won so unfairly. 
And so I, I reluctantly like shook hands with the, with the rest of the team. Um, and uh, so emotions were high going into the game, but the heat of playing and losing to a cheating team really set me off. So, um, oh, wrong page. Um, so my, my parents were there very lovingly. They were, they were offering me words of comfort and empathy, but I would not have it. I was wallowing in my anger, and I allowed it to boil over, and I slammed the car door with all of my might, as hard as I could. And immediately, my dad swung around to me in response, and he said, Jacob Robert, yikes, <laughs> this is not your car. And I know you're angry, but this is not an appropriate way to express it, right? And he said, get in the car, we're going home. So every ounce of ang anger immediately like drained out of my body. Um, and I felt regret for letting my, letting my anger boil over in this destructive way. But what's important in this story is that my dad showed me in this moment that my heart was impure and my actions were destructive. He showed me that such a response was not in line in what he asked from his son. He showed me that he loved me by not letting my own human anger go unaddressed. So in a similar way, God shows his love for us by reminding us, sometimes firmly, of what kind of behavior is appropriate for his people and what kind of behavior is not. Um, so our response to such reminders should be repentance. God's vision for Judah, as revealed in Jeremiah, is for his people to be known as a community of sinners, which does the hard work of recognizing, confessing, and repenting from its sin, knowing full well, as Jeremiah did, that we serve the God who is the compassionate and gracious God. He is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving rebellion and sin. In both the New and the Old Testament, we come to know this God and his plan to redeem the world, which culminates in God himself coming to earth in the form of Jesus. In Ephesians 5, Paul continues the marriage metaphor from Jeremiah, but this time in full light of this new covenant in Jesus. So I think we have that one up on the screen here as well. In verses 27 and 28 of Ephesians 5, he says this, Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Do you see God's vision here? Ephesians 5 is a continuation of the husband-wife metaphor with God welcoming his church back to himself as a bride washed and purified. Here, the unfaithfulness of humanity is not contrasted against the faithfulness of God as it was in Jeremiah, but is replaced with the faithfulness of Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So if any of you have, have spoken to me for more than 30 seconds, you probably know that I love music. Um, and one of my, my favorite bands of all time, uh, they're called the Avett Brothers. Does anybody, has anybody heard of the Avett Brothers? Know of them? A little bit? A few hands, yeah. My parents, woohoo. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so I, I, oh, I thought I would share a song with you guys. Um, and it, it's called The Ballad of Love and Hate. Um, the poetry and imagery contained in the song remind me of the text that we've looked at today and is quite reminiscent of the story of the prodigal son as well. There are a lot of similar themes in there. Um, and I hope that listening to the music and reading the lyrics on screen will provide us a moment to respond to our text today, to ponder the ways that we have been unfaithful to the Lord, and to ponder the loving mercy of our Savior, um, who removes our sin from us as far as the East is from the West. Um, after reading a passage like today's, it, will be, it, it can be very easy for us to, to fall into sorrow and to be burdened with, uh, with despair. Um, 
But that's, that's, not, that's not the response that God asks us to have. I want to remind you uh, adamantly, like, like we looked at in 2 Corinthians today, um, that God's vision is that any sorrow we would feel when we're met with, with, um, with the reality of our own sin, he wants our response to be one of repentance and assurance that we are welcomed back into the arms of our, of our loving Heavenly Father. And uh, so notice at the end of the song how quickly the personified love receives her beloved back. Uh, the song is strophic, so in other words, it's just a bunch of verses. There's no, like, chorus or anything like that. And this represents the long journey that hate goes on before he finds his way back to love. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty stunning picture of the gospel, um, that those who repent and turn back to the Lord will be received immediately back with tears of joy um, and an otherworldly love, no matter how long and rebellious the journey. So I think God is more eager for his people to come home than we are, <laughs> and it is through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that our unfaithfulness is forgiven and transforms into faithfulness. To live in such a hope was the invitation for the people of Judah given by Jeremiah, and that same invitation is set before us this morning. Let's give the song a listen really quick. It's a beautiful song, isn't it? Um, And remember what I said earlier about the prophets of the Old Testament doing two main things. I told you that the prophets reminded the people that the world is not as it should be and that the people of God are not as they should be. But there's one more piece to this. I'll give you the third reminder, that God is enacting his plan to restore all things and to make all things new. We're meant to recognize the hurt and the brokenness in ourselves and in our world but we're fueled by an immense hope that our gracious and loving God is setting out to renew all things. The Christian life is one of constant repentance, hope, and action to join ourselves to this mission, to God's mission for his good world. 